Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Literature, a New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Acton. This, my first podcast for the New Books Network, was a hard one, but a good one. Listen in as I talk cancer, parenting, writing, and Shakespeare's Hamlet with my former professor and mentor, author Eric LeMay, about his new chapbook, Remember Me, an Essay. When I first read this beautiful gut punch of an essay where LeMay explores his relationship with his young son alongside his experience with a surprise cancer diagnosis, I was prompted by LeMay's words to remember Hamlet crying out to the image of his father, saying, alas, poor ghost. That father ghost replying, pity me not, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. So listeners, lend thy serious hearing as LeMay and I talk intimately about the desire to be remembered while simultaneously letting that remembering take place outside and away from the self that is happening now and now and now and now. Hi, Eric, and thank you for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Ellie. I'm excited to talk about your upcoming book, Remember Me, an Essay, winner of the 2019 Cutbank Chatbook Contest. I found it to be a powerful and tender essay about some really tough ideas about mortality, parenthood, connection, the idea of the self, and how you're finding your way through that. This is particularly special for me and my inaugural podcast for the New Books Network, because of the role you've played in my own life as a former professor and mentor for the last, what, six years or so? So this book wasn't just a poignant experience for me as a reader. I read it as someone who knows a little about you. I read it as a friend. So on more than one level, it's a privilege to talk with you today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You know, one of the the things that comes up in the book is the difference between when you know an author and you're yeah. reading something by them and when you don't know an author and you're reading something by them and and how that inflects and enriches your reading experience. So I'm very glad to know that a friend had had read it. And uh, you know, we'll be curious to see if if any strangers decide to take a look and what their experience of it is. Absolutely. And whether someone knows you or not, uh, you know, I think as a reader, you come away after reading the book with a definite sense that this this needs to be out in the world. People need to read this. Um, they need to understand uh, this side of the human experience. So, okay. So let's just dive right in. Um, can you go ahead and uh, let listeners know what a chat book is and how this chat book, Remember Me, made it to publication? Sure, I'd be happy to do so. So a chapbook, if, if you aren't familiar with uh, the form, is this sort of in-between thing. It's it's not quite what publishers call a book because it's too short, um, but it's not something that gets published with other things. Um, it has this kind of 
integrity that stands alone. Sometimes they're a small collection of poetry or a small collection of fiction. So what I have here is an essay-length chapbook, which clocks in. It's something just shy of 50 pages. Um, so there are these, these sort of self-contained, short literary experiences, and they allow for a certain kind of freedom because they ask for, I think, more space around them than something that, that say, shows up in a literary journal, um, but they don't quite ask several days of you, um, like a novel would, um, or a collection of poems that you would take your time with. Um, so it's it's this in-between genre, um, and I'm very glad that, that Cutbank was interested in publishing it, um, because, you know, for reasons I'm sure we'll get into talking about, I wanted it to have a material existence, not just to exist on the web, um, but to have a kind of concreteness in, in the hand. Because it's about mortality and about being. And so, you know, to have an extant book was important for me. As to how it came about, um, I guess there are, there are kind of two versions of this. There's the life story that, that came up to the writing of it, which I'm sure we'll talk about at length. Um, but maybe a, a kind of interesting story as we go through this global pandemic um, about what publishing looks like. So the book, it exists now. It does exist in its material form. Um, but I do not have a copy of it. I have yet to see it. So I'm, I'm having Zoom meetings and chatting with friends, and some of them have it because they were at a conference where it was available to buy. So I have seen my book on screen. Um, but for me, it still has a digital existence, but I have not uh, held it in my hands. So um, that's just part of the many strangenesses that we are undergoing at this particular moment. Uh, certainly not the most important, but I think it adds to just this, this moment of, you know, unprecedented connection that we have that the author can be someone that doesn't have his or her own book while uh, other people are holding it up on screen and saying, oh, it, it's it's really nicely done. And I believe that's true. Right, right. Okay. So how about we have you start with reading a selection from the book before we really kind of get in? Sure. I think I could read a little bit so the book consists of a couple of different kinds of, of writing. There's a meditative aspect um, that, that kind of moves in sections, and that's interspersed with a, um, a journal that I was keeping during the, the writing of the piece um, or a writing of the experiences that fold into the piece. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll read a little bit from each one. And that'll Sounds give the good. readers, yeah, our listeners, something of a, a taste of it. So, so this is um, the meditative part of it. Um, last year, at my grandmother's funeral, I shared her first memory. She was 98 when she died, and no one at the funeral home was near her age. I'm the only one left, she would often say, sometimes sadly, like when she attended her annual high school reunion. Sometimes, matter of fact, like when I asked her about her early life, she'd tell me, for example, about the time she had to throw boiling water on a bull to get it off her front porch, or the time during World War II when the sheriff came to her door asking if she'd hidden black market tires in her house 
and how she'd said, no sheriff, and you can come on in and look for yourself, and how the sheriff said, no, Mary, I trust you, and how he left, and she went in, and right there where my grandfather had put them without telling her were the tires stacked neatly under the piano. I wonder how many people died in memory when my grandmother died. For how many people was she the last one who remembered them, the only one left? And then here's a little bit, thank you. Here's a little bit from the journal sections. Um, So this is about three years ago from now. And my son's name is Roland, but we call him Ro. And he's about, he's a little over one at this point. Ro's ability to repeat words is improving. In the right mood, he'll try anyone that we single out. Like when he overheard my wife Kristen say, Hell no. And he said, hey, nah. <laughs> Ro also adorable with pronouns. If I say, do you want to eat the tomato or do you want me to eat it? He'll say, me to eat it. Meaning he wants me, his papa, to eat it. Ro always remains you. If he'd wanted the tomato, he'd have said, you to eat it. Ro hasn't figured out that pronoun- pronouns switch back and forth. On Monday, I found out the tumor is cancer through one of those automatic email updates. Spent hours reading up on it, trying to reassure Kristen. Don't see the new surgeon at the James until a week from Tuesday, so have to be patient in all senses. Summer is here, 89 degrees today, hillsides filled with leaves. Thank you. Um, You know, you managed to weave so much into this book, including your struggle with cancer, your connection to Roe, but also Shakespeare and Montaigne. What prompted you to write this essay? How did it all come together? The essay actually arose as the result of a, a very kind invitation I received from a wonderful writer named Amy Wright. And uh, she's a nonfiction writer and a poet. And she invited me to come um, to her university and give a reading. And it was the first invitation I had received since I had had my cancer surgeries. And I guess a thing to alert listeners to to help to kind of orient them would be that in June of 2017, I had uh, a succession of of cancer surgeries. I had a... um, a tumor in my tonsil. And so I had that removed. And then I had a selective neck dissection where they go in and they remove the lymphatic system from the side of your neck, because that's one of the places that the cancer travels. And as a result of that surgery, um, they found another tumor in the other tonsil. So I literally had to have the exact same surgery again, a couple of weeks later. Um, And as a result of that, I was just in a place where I could not write. Um, and I received this, this invitation um, several, several months later from Amy, um, who asked me to, to come and give a reading. And I thought, I need to write something new um, because the work that I had done before the surgeries just didn't feel like me didn't feel like I was the person who had written them anymore. So I wanted something that would represent what it felt like to be me now, what it felt like to speak um, with two cut throats. 
and and I couldn't. I couldn't write. Um, so I spent months rewriting a 500-page essay and eventually wrote, wrote it. Um, had no idea if it was any good or not, but included that in the reading that I gave there and um, received a kind response not only from Amy, but from the, the readers and, I mean, I'm sorry, the audience members that were there. Um, and so, so then I went back and I kind of assembled this, this longer essay out of that with fragments from my journals and reflections that I have, I had kind of had that were bubbling over, but really the one way to describe this, this book is not that it's an essay. It's really a 500 word essay, that essay I was describing with a prologue about kind of the life that led up to that moment, um, an expansion of it. Yeah. You know, you kind of hinted at uh, some of the form in the book. Um, Talk a little about form here, especially the visual aspects, which, which we see a lot in your other work as well. Um, some of the, as you said, some of this book reads like journal entries and the rhythm of those pages, which are presented visually with black backgrounds and stark white text against the more lyrical introspective pages with the traditional black text on white page. Um, I think that form kind of interacts and speaks a message of its own. Can you talk a little bit about that more? Sure. So... You know, I, I think that what I wanted to try to do was use some of the power of white space and silence, and in this case, black space, um, to signal or set the tone for the work. Um, so I, I've always been moved by those writers who work in, in a kind of silhouette form and those artists that do so, you know, Kara Walker, I think the most amazing among them. Um, and so I set off the journals as being with a black background and white text, um, over and against the kind of expected way that a page works, um, with a white background and black text just to signal the difference in voices and the difference in experience. Um, so the journals are from the time of, I was keeping a journal every week of the experiences, um, that myself and my family were going through and I wanted to signal in some way, uh, there's that immediacy. There's that difference between that and the reflective voice that's writing at a later moment and trying to make sense of, of that lived experience. Um, and then at one key place, there's a, a photograph that comes in and that's right before, the book ends right before the the final essay, that essay that I had spoken of earlier that I read out loud. Um, and I just wanted the, the reader to see myself and my son. Um, and, you know, I kind of blurted out a little bit because I didn't want the definiteness of it to get in the way of everything that had been conjured. But I thought that using the photographic medium to invoke that kind of physical presence would be important at that moment. Um, and so, so that's how the pieces came together. And, you know, I hope that it conveys some of 
the differences that that I think were key to the experience and that I wanted to recreate in the the capturing of it, um, as well as I, I hope some of the starkness of what I'm trying to bring into relief. Yeah, I mean, uh, as a reader, I felt that intensity. You know, I think the form that you've created here allows for those moments of intensity. And then, you know, it's followed by um, kind of this extreme normalcy to highlight the the trauma of illness and how the mundane experience of life can simultaneously be, you know, a shock and a comfort. Like uh, in the selection you just read, when you talk about receiving the, the biopsy results, uh, over this automatic email and how you spent hours researching and, and kind of reassuring your wife. Um, and then you write, uh, summer is here, 89 degrees today, hillside filled with leaves. And that, you know, that takes place in that kind of journal entry, black page, white text, you know, and I think it's incredibly effective to allow the reader, whether they've experienced, uh, you know, a similar trauma they can relate with, or they're kind of having this, this observational experience as a reader, I think it really kind of drives home that intensity um, of experiencing something like this. And meanwhile, life is still uh, kind of carrying on as it does unaffected by your particular storyline. And I think that's important that that shows up in the book, but also in the form. Yeah, thank you. That's that's really nicely said. I think one of the things that I noticed then, and you know, notice now with with what's happening with the the coronavirus pandemic and the fact that bodies are piling up all around the world, is that that nature right. doesn't care. Right. Right. I'm looking out the window right now, and the green world is just riotous with life. Um, as it was three years ago, as I was going through this encounter with death. Um, and what was interesting about having, you know, a, a child who's just a little over one at that point is they're, they're still so natural. Um, and that was one of the, the great comforts was that, you know, Roe, Roe didn't, he, no doubt he understood something was happening. Some sort of drama was happening, but he was very much, in the business of being alive and growing and doing exactly what he should do. And, and it was very comforting and a kind of compass point to be in the presence of this young child who was just going to go on being himself and, you know, growing in the same way that all these things were, were that were coming back in spring. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm especially moved uh, that you've been able to beautifully use other voices like Rose. Um, I like that part in the book where you're kind of highlighting his exploration of the word no, (laughs) but you also use your your grandmother's recollection, which you um, brought up in your selection that you just read. Uh, But then you also have Montaigne woven in there. Um, And, you also talk about this idea as a new parent where you're, you're getting all this advice and, and some of the advice uh, for dealing with crying babies is, is the whole cried out technique. And you have these absolutely gorgeous lines that I had to pause after reading it. Um, you know, you, you, you talk about the babies who've had to cry it out without the words to explain whatever it 
is that they're crying out for. And you say, you write it, the night, it, your tears, it, your trust, your terror, your hope that if you ever need someone, when you cry out in the night, someone will come. And the scope there, I think is just absolutely incredibly appropriate, not just to address the specific pain from, as you wrote, the voice that's been cut from my throat, but the interconnectedness of humanity. And I think that section specifically really kind of explains that this essay is, is about you and your life, but as every good essay is, it's, it's also about Roe and Montaigne and about all of us. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that one of the things about so my wife and I, you know, we were in this situation that so many parents are of how do you deal with a crying baby at night? And anybody who's, you know, been in the orbit of that knows that that can be very significant, especially after weeks and weeks of no sleep. And um, one of the things I noticed about becoming a parent, not just in this situation but in so many is is how you are in a structural position that allows you to be so cruel Mm. to other people um because you're dealing with another person who can't speak for himself or herself or their self um and you can easily justify any decision you want to make as being not only the right one, but for this silenced person's benefit. Right. Um, And, and I think in the, in the sleep issue, I just saw that coming to the fore so much um, with all this advice where there were these entire kind of structures of, and, and books and experts and of how the best thing you can do for a baby is leave them crying and screaming in a room by themselves in a crib with no blankets at the age of three weeks or, I mean, it's just, you know, no animal would do that to its, its cubs, um, which I mentioned in the book. And so, so I think that for me is a, was one of the ways of exploring how we, we become helpless, um, you know, what you do when you undergo the kinds of surgeries I did and how we can be cruel to one another um, and cruel to those, those of us that are helpless. And that often the motivation for that is, is not entirely conscious. Um, And, but, but that doesn't, in my mind, justify it. So there, you know, there are lots of ways when you're sick with cancer that people, treat you very well. And I'm, if you can't hear it, I'm speaking in quotes and, you know, it's, we're going to give you your privacy. We're going to, you know, give you your space. And it's really, we don't want to be around death and sickness. It's just becomes very clear. I think as soon as you get sick, how the world thinks about sickness. And, you know, I don't think I'm saying anything mm-hmm. new for listeners to say that we are in a mm-hmm. death phobic culture. We are in a sickness phobic culture. Um, so to get cancer, which is, you know, in the, I think the public mind just code for death, pretty much you become something repulsive. Um, and so to see, you know, acts of kindness that are actually acts of being repulsed, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if it's a, I don't, 
Yeah. So it's just a way of, of thinking about like, you know, here are people pretending to do what's best for a child and it just never squared with me um, that that was the way that, that what would be best for the child. Certainly not if the child could speak, would, would the child be saying, oh, yes, leave me here. Um, right. And I think it's the same thing where there's at least helpful analogies when you're sick that there you are and often the treatment that you get is is not in your interest but in the interest of of those around you right yeah i think the book uh, is very effective in kind of drawing those lines without being explicit that you know there's this element of um having to face it alone you know that is grossly unfair uh, in a similar way that the whole cry it out approach just has a, a basic unfairness to it. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what comes up in the book uh, without being super explicit is is talking about trauma and talking about the trauma of illness and the trauma of how these kinds of, of things affect how we view ourselves and how we create our idea of self um, I would even say that, like, I'm sure uh, the moment you became a parent, though it was probably, you know, this, you would obviously never say that you don't want to be a father, um, but I'm sure it was a, a traumatic experience that your life changed from one second to the next. Um, and, you know, as you were talking, the the idea that illness in itself is something that isolates you, so you're not just dealing with the sickness. You're not just dealing with the thing happening to you um, from inside. You're also dealing with all the implications of of how you now fit into the world around you and how you even view yourself. Yeah, that's very nicely said. And how you no longer fit or, or don't fit right. in the ways that you once did. Um, and that even the ways that you once did now feel hostile to you. Um, and certainly becoming a father is a, a threshold experience, you know, that you become a different self. I guess, you know, I, I have the, these moments where I question that. And one of the things about being an essayist is always asking yourself, is that true? Um, mm -hmm. Because I, I did have peers who were relatively the same age that seemed unchanged by becoming parents um, or, you know, talking with people who had cancer who seemed unchanged by becoming, you know, having had um, cancer. And, and I often wonder, you know, is it that, that my temperament as an essay is to be reflective, excessively reflective, um, to recognize these sorts of changes? Are other people living in denial? Were they already sort of keyed in to be parents before they had parent before they had children? And so it wasn't really a shift. Um, sure. But certainly with the the fathers, it seems like there's the ease with which that change can be limited. <laughs> sure. Um because the the work is outsourced on the mother. Um, and the significance is often outsourced on the mother and, you know, especially in American culture where whoever is, is, is making, you know, the livelihood has to keep doing it, whether that's the, the mother or the father, um, or whoever it is in the family, 
um, is part of it, that you don't even get the space to recognize what changes might be taking place. And instead, they're, they're all occurring to you while you're forced to, to go back into your job or your life in the exact same way that you were, despite the fact that this huge change has happened to you. And that's certainly the analog in cancer, which is that before you're even going through treatment, people are telling you, oh, you're going to be as good as new, um, which is a terrible thing to say <laughs> to someone, right? But, you know, I, it's maybe well meant, right? Like that you'll get through this, you'll come out as though it never happened. Um, and of course, that just denies you the actual experience you're having at that particular moment and leaves you isolated in that experience because, hey, you've already been asked to be the same person coming out on the other side completely well. So all of this that you're going through in your your treatment is just a detour, unless it, of course, is the final exit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you said before uh, that you went through a period where you wouldn't or you couldn't write um, after the uh, can- the initial cancer diagnosis. And then you wrote that 500 word essay. And then the book came from that. How has writing for you? I mean, writing is, is your life. You're, you're a professor of writing. Um, you write essays, uh, you delve into some, some digital work as well. And how has, how has this changed that for you? Yeah, I would say that I'm still struggling in the same place. Um, how do you find, you know, I think it's very easy for me to write certain kinds of things that don't require drawing on the sources of the self because I've, I've been doing it for 25 years. Um, mm-hmm. But I think when I try or imagine to do the kind of writing that I most care about and want to write, um, I can't go back to the the work that I did before and I'm still exploring or wondering or even hoping that that there's some foundation that might emerge. I think one of the things is that like so many American writers, it's probably even safer to say something like white male American writers who have gone through the American university educational system like I have um, mm-hmm. that are that aesthetic that I learned uh, as to what makes good writing really kind of had its foundations in high modernism um, mm-hmm. in figures like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and Virginia Woolf. Um, and, and th- they were in some ways reckoning with, with some of the things that we're looking at now um, not just, my particular illness, but this global moment of like, what does it mean to be in cultural trauma um, or personal trauma? But but their kind of solution to it was to annex emotion, you know, what they would call sentimentality or something like that. And and so, you know, in the for those people that have know something about a writing workshop or things like that, you know, we have these phrases like, like, is that expression of love earned was it earned right or or is this too easy um and usually this comes around things like like 
professions of of love or care or loss or grief um that these are all taboo somehow like that's that's the aesthetic um because of the you know i guess if i were making a case for it because of the kind of hallmark world that would come in and speak for those experiences so you have T.S. Eliot famously banishing emotion from poetry and things like that. And so then I'm suddenly in experience, you know, in an experience where I'm in love with my son and I could lose him. Um, and the aesthetics that I inherited say, you can't really speak about that. You have to earn that. Is that too easy? Like, how do you speak out of that? And so I'm, I'm trying to find my way, and this book is part of that, towards an aesthetic that doesn't believe those things, but perhaps doesn't fall into, I don't know, the, the aesthetic traps that they were trying to warn against. But what does that writing look like? To speak of love, to speak of grief, you know, to speak of someone that seems more important to you than your own soul and make that art. Yeah. yeah. I'm, you know, I'm so glad to hear you, to hear you say that. And it was definitely something that, um, you know, as I was reading through the book, it was something that I felt uh, the importance of coming through that, you know, as I'm reading about how you're navigating the idea of, especially how memory works and how, you know, you're, you're having these daily lived experiences, watching your young son go through his different childhood development stages. And you're keenly aware that it's unlikely that he'll retain these memories that you are, you are really cataloging and, and collecting and curating um, until he's, you know, roughly of the age of six and, and, and you, also kind of explain that by the time he's six, that's about the time that uh, you can start allowing in a little bit of, I don't know if hope is the right word, but a little bit of a um, little breathing easier maybe because that would mark the, the timeline of a possible remission for you. And, you know, you've titled the book, Remember Me, and there's a lot about memory in it. And I know, um, some of your other work also deals with the idea of memory. And I just find it, I find it fascinating. Um, and also just, I mean, again, uh, trying to find better words and I can't, but I find it touching. I find a place for, for my own stories to kind of reach in and, and, and grab hold as I'm reading these pages that, you know, memory can kind of serve as uh, containers for, these things that we might label as sentimentality. Um, but really it's, it's that it's the, the details and the textures of those connections that we have. Um, and I want you to kind of talk more on the idea of memory, but I want to go on to say that, you know, you know, a little bit of my personal story. And as I, I read through your book, I was thinking of the, of, of Rose side of it, of, of the, the child side of it. And, you know, losing my mother to cancer and I was the child and thinking about 
her life and remembering her and how, how that plays out and how, how to navigate that the, the couple years um, as we were kind of facing this together. And I found not sentimentality in your work. I found extreme comfort that, you know, I'm not alone that when I cry out in the night, that there's uh, there's humanity there, you know, that there's the, the ache in all of us as we face these, these different traumas and uh, finding that in, you know, the pages of, a book I think is especially important. Thank you. And, and thank you for, for mentioning some of your own story. Um, I've read your work and I've, I've seen how you, you're, you're coming at it from, from the other end, how you're, you know, to remember, right. Is to bring back together. um, Yes. To put things together, to remember those parts that have been pulled apart and, you know, you're doing this, this act of conjuration and love where you're taking those memories of your mother and really in some ways, right, her essence, that which wouldn't be there if you weren't there and, and pulling them mm-hmm. through the, your work, you know, back into a form, um, which I think seen generously and, you know, at its best is, another kind of life, a different kind of life for her, um, a chance for her to reach others that you're never going to, you're never going to know about through your work. You know, mm-hmm. she's going to become a part of their lives. Um, so there, there is this idea that, that through the writing we do and the remembering we do in it, that we live on. Um, so that was, you know, this was particularly acute for me because I knew that that if I if the cancer took an extremely malignant course, my son would have no living memory of me. Um, mm. He would be too young. You can't, you know, psychologists basically say that it, you know at this point you can't have an episodic memory at at one and three months mm. or something like that. You might be able to have it at two and a half. If something huge happens, if your house right. burns down or somebody dies, which so so maybe my son could have had a memory of my death at that point. Um, and so so that was sort of an instigation to move forward. It's well, can I put some of myself down on the page in such a way that if my son had an interest, he might be able to resurrect it Um by reading the books and and that was the instigation behind the journals and other th- other kinds of projects that that I've done that you know I didn't do for larger audiences like assembling you know from all those smartphone videos something that could be humanly watchable instead of 600 a folder with 600 separate videos like that sort of thing um mm. but yeah there there's really that and I had a student while this was happening that I think kind of he was he he was just a detonation in the center of all this and he'll never know that that was the case but he uh very much like yourself had lost his father um and and he was writing work and some of it was strong and some of it was a little bit uneven um and he was self-professedly a little bit lazy and uh and so he wrote this piece about his his father and being maybe four or five 
Um, and just being able to remember the funeral and, um, and he wanted to meet with me after the class was over to, you know, keep working on his, his, his work. And I, you know, I do that with my students and, um, and so he was like, yeah, you know, I, I think sometimes I should, I should try to learn out more about my, my father. And, and I thought, well, yeah, maybe you should trying to hold back. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm in a position where you, do, you, you see the, the coral correlations and uh yes. and and he's like you know and i'm like are, are there sources that you could go to you know and and he's like well i have older brothers and sisters and, and but he was he didn't have the the kind of will to even want to go interview them about his father he was like yeah but it'll be uncomfortable or something and so i just had this vision of like you know what's it going to be like, you know, is my son even going to get to the point where he'll want to look back on these sorts of things? But I definitely wanted to create, you know, I, I, I say at one point in, in the book that I don't want to be a ghost that haunts him um, right. were I to die. And, and that is certainly true, but I would want to be a presence that could be encountered as much as I possibly could. And, and part of this writing um, is hopefully a way to do that, that if, if he ended up being that 21 year old kid that I was sitting across from, that there would be some place he could go to say, well, well, here's something of my father. And, you know, as, as we started, while I believe that, that the work that I've done before getting sick captures who I was before then, um, mm -hmm. it seems like having something after that after he was born is also crucial. It's crucial for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you talk uh, about your writing before and after one thing that um, kind of carries through is definitely kind of your exploration of memory. And I think even as a student in your classes uh, you've talked a lot about memory and, and how that serves as a role in writing um, and how, uh, memory works, you know, that it's not linear. I think you've uh, probably told me that <laughs> at least a hundred times. Um, so how, you know, with the book being titled Remember Me and 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 memory being such a, an important investigation in this book, can you talk a little bit more about how you see memory and the role of memory uh, as a writer? Yeah, I think I can, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. Thanks for the question. Um, I think that, that I see it as, as beautiful in the ways that we've been talking about that when you remember something, you actually resurrect it, you give it form, you keep it alive. Um, how many people, you know, are you keeping alive in your memory and not even that, but how many moments, right. That would be otherwise lost, um, you know, the, the psychological present is like six or seven seconds. How much of any of it do we retain as we move forward? But there's this, this beautiful thing called memory and through it, we assemble one another, you know, you hold memories of me from the time that we were in class together that I will mm -hmm. never have access to, but <laughs> I have the beauty of the fact that they're alive um, in you. And I remember things uh, six years ago, um, of a much younger and much different Ellie, 
um, <laughs> that I still think are beautiful, even though I know that you have changed so much um, and gone through significant traumas of your own and reckon with them in, in huge ways and are a much different person. Um, but I hold those in my heart and I keep them alive in the same way that I do my grandmother or, you know, my son at one in three months at this moment, even though now he's a ripping four and a half um, <laughs> and a, such a different person. Um, but, but our memories hold those. And, and I think that's over and against a very dominant view right now in creative nonfiction, literary nonfiction, where memory is this untrustworthy thing, where memory is that which you can't verify like a journalist um, that you have to corroborate or you get it wrong um, or memory is untrustworthy or something like that. Um, and I think all of those things are true, but for me, they miss the larger capacity and truth and value of memory, which is that it, it saves us. It, reconstitutes who we are who are you but the memories and the stories you tell to yourself and the ways that those have been written in your body um so so i'm a big i'm a big fan of of the remembrance um and i recognize the difficulties that that come with it and the the possibility for for doing wrong for misremembering someone right no one would want to be misremembered um right and yet at the same time um, I would want to affirm that as, as one of the, the great gifts of being human is that you have, you know, imagine being one of those squirrels that can't even remember where you buried the nuts and just going around <laughs> constantly digging because you hope that maybe this was the spot that, that it was going to happen, you know, or the tragedy of, of those sort of systemic diseases where, where people lose their memories and slowly lose themselves and everything they, they held inside them. Um, mm. I very much regret the the comparison, but I hope that the the listener will recognize that they're both <laughs> coming from the same impulse. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that begs the question, especially um, uh, with the book itself. But you know, what do you want Roe to remember about you? Well, that's a really great question. I think I think I would want him to have the freedom to call his own memories um, mm -hmm. of what is significant for him. Um, I think one of the things I've experienced in my own life is the dangers of you being given the narrative of someone else. This is who I am. This is what right. you should remember about me. Um, and I think that, that even in well-intentioned and good people, um, that's still a dicey, dicey dynamic of here's this, here's who I am. Here's the story. Remember me this way. Um, mm. You know, because then it doesn't leave room for your own experience of that person or your own experience can feel, I guess at best, like an extension at worst, like a betrayal. Um, and I know you, you had a very complicated relationship with your own mother where 
your memories of who she was and perhaps who she would articulate herself being were not aligned. Um, And I think that, that we have to have the freedom and the agency to allow our own memories and the knowledge that comes from them to guide our picture of, of who this person is sitting across from us or who this person is that was our, our parent. Um, because otherwise it's a kind of, of self denial. Um, and even if it's in the service of the good of the other. So I both believe that, that people have the right to tell their own stories about who they are. Um, but then we also have the right to have our own experience of those people. And so that's what I'd want for Roe, I think, is that he could have the experience of his father that he had and and maybe one of those experiences that, that will be later in his life will be reading this book. Yeah. Yeah, no, even as you were talking before you mentioned, uh, you know, my own relationship with my mother, I was thinking about how the greatest thing that she offered me, um, especially as she was considering her own mortality and kind of facing the end was permission to, to remember her however I needed to, and to, you know, write about it, however I remembered. Um, and I think that, uh, absolutely came from a place of love in her. And, uh, I think that kind of love which is often kept so private, you know, it's, it's important that we write about it and, and push against the idea of sentimentality. And again, uh, I know we said this before, I think that this book, Remember Me, really does that very successfully. Uh, and I think it's very important that it's kind of out there uh, in the world. Um, one of the memories that I, I love that you articulated um in the book was this image of you and Roe uh, in front of the mirror enacting, you know, lines from Shakespeare. And, uh, you know, I think those kinds of memories um, are just as connecting and comforting, whether, you know, um, I've lost my mother uh, or even if she was still alive, those kinds of memories are connecting me to her. Um, but so are the, the difficult memories as well, because it reminds us that we were together. We, we put effort into it. We shared experiences. Um, and I think that's incredibly important, you know? Um, so you talk about how, uh, this has kind of adjusted things for your life and, and and changed the way, um, writing is going. And you kind of hinted that you're still possibly, struggling with getting words on the page. Are you writing anything at this time? Are you working on any projects? I've continued the, the journal that's featured in this. Um, That's been my most consistent writing uh, since really Roe was born. In fact, I was just pulling things out in, you know, this time where we have an unusual amount of, of time at home. At least I do. I'm lucky enough to have that. Um, And it's been, five successive years that I've kept a a journal of his growing up. Um, And Mm. since the advent of the virus, I've been doing it daily. um, So that if, if he wants, there'll be a record of, you know, this experience that he lived through, which, you know, a lot of childhood psychologists are, are saying it could be a generational trauma. 
Um, so, so what was that for him? Um, and, uh, and then I'm, I'm contemplating or, or working on doing something that's, that's a little larger around the same themes that are in this book. I think when I wrote it, I was able to, to speak to some of the fears that were most acute, um, but but having gone through getting diagnosed not just with cancer three years ago, but I was re-diagnosed with it at the beginning of of this academic year in September. Um, mm-hmm. So having gone through a recurrence and having gone through another set of surgeries, um, that that I want to. Yeah, you'll you'll hear the kind of speculation in my own voice, but I'm making <laughs> notes towards writing about that experience in a way that I hope might be helpful to people who are being diagnosed with cancer because now I've had the, I don't know if benefit is not the right word, but the experience (laughs) of having been diagnosed with cancer three times. um, Mm. And, and it feels like, you know, for whatever reason, I've been lucky enough to, to still be here. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and not everyone who's going to get that diagnosis will have that. And it's, it's too much to take in when it happens. Um, and I didn't really have anybody that could stand next to me and say, here's what you're going through. Um, which was extremely lamentable. I probably should have turned to some other writers or something like that, but Mm. Yeah. So, you know, if you'd asked me the first time, what was it like to get diagnosed with cancer? I would have said, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I was so in shock. You know, I immediately went into how am I going to, how am I going to fix this? Right. That's the thing. And so, you know, a deep diving in all to the, all the medical knowledge. So I could do what, you know, Stephen Jenkinson calls it learning to speak doctor as though that's going to help you. And then, you know, three weeks, I go through the surgery and I'm, you have cancer again, um, or you had it and here it is and we've got to do it. So there I find out I have cancer a second time. And, you know, at that point I'm blasted from having gone through it the first time. So I'm just kind of staggering forward into the, the that next set of surgeries. And then I have two years go by almost. Um, and when you get to the second year, statistically, that's kind of, you know, you're like at the 90 something percent chance that this is never going to come back. Um, and, and it came back. So that was, that was a whole another set of experiences to suddenly have. And I can remember when I found out that the, the surgeon said something like, hey, it looks exactly the same as before, you know, like we're going to send the biopsies off, but you've got it. Um, he had told this to my wife and my wife told this to me and, um, and I just thought I'm feeling what it's like to get this news for the first time. Um, you know, and it was, it was like your bones shattering inside of you again and again and again, you know, like your, your entire frame is a glass waterfall but it doesn't shatter just once it just keeps falling inside you and so i'm hoping that you know there's this 
there's this idea when you're sick and it's bad and you think to yourself, and I thought to myself, I, I just want more time, right? Like I want, I want to see my son go to three or four or five or, you know, get married to somebody I'm ambivalent about, you know, whatever it is. Right. <laughs> um, and then learn to, you know, love that person too. And you're like, I want, I want that more time. That's, that's what I want. I don't want it to end too soon. And and I, I kind of realized, you know, through some reading that, that I'm in that, like mm-hmm. I, I got the more time, you know, I think that especially occurred to me when I, I was, I had the recurrence when it came back, I was like, I'm in that, I'm in that gift time, you know, what do you do with that? And so maybe one of the, the things that I can do is, is try to write something that would, that would be helpful to people who are, who are entering into this experience, who suddenly have this, this bomb go off in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it is, it's unfortunate that we're in this, this cancer phobic death phobic culture where, you know, it's, it's the horrible has suddenly happened and, you know, we're not prepared for that psychologically or as a culture. Um, and so the resources that we have that are emotional and, and spiritual are slim. They are slim. Um, we have a huge medical set of resources that come in, but you are immediately turned into a medical object, um, that is going to be cured or handled. Uh, which is much different from being, you know, a human being with a psyche and a soul, and and what what comfort is out there for you at that moment? Um, so maybe my voice can add to that. So that's that's sort of what I'm thinking about now. Yeah. Well, I know whatever you do write, whenever you write it, um, readers will surely be enriched by it, and I personally will eagerly look for it to come out. And I'm so glad that this book is, is out there. When, when does remember me an essay, when does it come out? Where can we pre-order it? It is out right now. You can, you can order it. And I, I believe that the new books network will link to it, whether you can get your hands on a physical copy or not. um, I know right now that they are, in lockdown in a warehouse in Montana <laughs> and that, uh, they will not be released until after the pandemic. Um, so, so if you order a copy now, you may very well receive it before the, the writer of the book actually holds it <laughs> in his hands. Um, and then send me an email and tell me what you think if you do. <laughs> Right. Well, there's a quote from something one of the cut bank judges had to say that I wholeheartedly agree agree with. Uh, They said this book is gorgeous and moving and technically sound, that they haven't been able to forget it. And neither will I. Eric, thank you so much for talking with me today. Ellie, thank you for having me as your inaugural interview. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you.